Pull up a chair and let's talk about the Overland Campaign. I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War podcast, historian Nathan Provost joins us, one of the newest voices with Emerging Civil War, and he's here to talk about one of his favorite topics, the Lee versus Grant matchup of the 1864 Overland Campaign, today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. I feel like it has been raining books around here, which is a good thing after the long COVID drought we have had in the publishing world. Uh, Of course, with the Emerging Civil War series so far this spring, we've had, unlike anything that ever floated, The Monitor, Virginia, and The Battle of Hampton Roads by Dwight Hughes. And we've had A Mortal Blow to the Confederacy, The Fall of New Orleans, 1862, by Mark Bielski. And at the printer right now, we've got Grant's Left Hook, The Bermuda Hundred Campaign by Sean Michael Chick. Lincoln Comes to Gettysburg, The Creation of the Soldiers National Cemetery and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address by Brad and Linda Gottfried. Passing Through the Fire, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain in the Civil War by Brian Swartz. And for good measure from the Emerging Revolutionary War series, The Winter That Won the War, Valley Forge by Phil Greenwald. So we've just got a ton of publishing stuff that is underway right now. And of course, our engaging the Civil War titles, The Bonds of War by Diana Dretzky, which we're talking about this month on the podcast. So all kinds of great reading. Check the website for details as as the books become available and start rolling out lots of cool stuff for you to read and you'll hear about it all here on the emerging civil war podcast Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski, and joining me this evening is my colleague Nate Provost. Nate, how you doing? Huh? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing super well, thanks. And it is May, which in my neck of the woods means battlefield season, uh, kicking off with Chancellorsville and then rolling into Wilderness and then right into Spotsylvania. And uh, Nate is one of the new voices at Emerging Civil War, is a big overland campaign guy. Yeah, uh, I've been doing research on Cold Harbor and I've been I've read, of course, all of Gordon Ray's Overland campaign and and many, many more. Uh, So it's great to be here. I'm really excited to uh, uh, be joining you this evening. Um, But you did mention uh, Chancellorsville. And so one item I I did particularly want to uh, bring up here is actually, I was curious, just um, especially living uh, near Virginia and, and, and studying both Chancellorsville and the wilderness. And I'm just kind of curious about kind of the stark contrast. Um, I know that a lot of people like to compare uh, the two and it's kind of ironic. They overlap each other by just about a year. So um, I'm just kind of curious, like um, just your thoughts um, between those two different battles. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, a year and three days between the mm-hmm. two of them. And um, the the Battle of Chancellorsville sort of happens on the eastern edge of the wilderness, whereas the Battle of the Wilderness kind of happens right in the thick of it. Uh, One of Joe Hooker's main objectives was to get through the wilderness, push eastward toward Fredericksburg. And it's actually there on the edge of the wilderness that Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson turn around and catch Hooker. So Hooker actually has the benefit of quite a bit of open ground. Um, when he is leading his two columns on the uh, turnpike and the and the uh, plank road, and yeah. it's really his abandonment of that ground 
um, that I think sets the stage for his ultimate defeat. Um, one could argue that, that his decision to pull back on May 1st uh, is really what loses him the battle because he does have the opportunity to deploy his forces, which outnumber uh, Lee almost two to one, you know, a little more than two to one. And mm. uh, so, you know, that, that, that becomes a significant factor. So then when he contracts his lines and he does get into the wilderness, it's a lot harder for him to keep track of what the Confederates are up to. It's a lot easier for the Confederates to maneuver. Now, contrast that to the Battle of the Wilderness, where Grant is also trying to get through the wilderness as fast as possible to Spotsy, where the ground opens up. You know, we're seeing a familiar theme mm-hmm. here. Um, yeah. And Lee hits him before uh, Grant can even get out of the wilderness. Yeah. And I say Lee hits him and really like Lee shows up and goes nanny, nanny, boo, boo. And Grant's the one who makes the decision to pitch in, uh, you know, when, when he tells mm-hmm. Warren, like, if you see any portion of the Confederate army, pitch into him, don't make dispositions, just go. Um, so, you know, Lee dangles that bait and Grant absolutely takes it. And it's because they're so entrenched and entwined in that wilderness that uh, neither army can really get purchase on each other, which in essence makes it a draw, which for Lee makes it a win. Um, and Grant's decision is like, you know what, let's just continue on with the plan um, and, and pull himself out of there. Um, and I think that, that that decision, and I always talk about it as the turning point of the war, mm-hmm. um, that decision where Grant's going to keep going, whereas Hooker is like, ah, I got to pull out and, and, and withdraw. Uh, it makes all the difference. Absolutely. Um, you could probably say something to, to the effect that um, it really, I, I know JFC Fuller um, makes, makes a note that it's, it's, and I, you know, again, I don't, I don't know how much I agree with this and I don't know how you measure it. Um, he calls it the Army of the Potomac's greatest strategic victory. And, and I do agree it's a strategic victory. Do I think it's the greatest strategic victory? I don't know. I think that's a, a little bit debatable. Um, however, I do find it significant. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever read, uh, read uh, Bruce Catton, uh, uh, but in um, one of his one of his books, I, I can't remember which trilogy it is, um, but he actually makes note of at the Grand Review in 1865. You know, they have all these flags with Grant's great victories on them, right? Um, you know, so it's like Shiloh, Vicksburg, Chattanooga. But I think interesting. The other one is the wilderness, uh, and I and I think that's significant. They so, you know, I I, I think that um, ultimately, their stillness at Appomattox. That's the one. That's the mm-hmm. one. Um, I so it's clear that you know that was a significant battle for um, the Union Army, and whether uh, you know I whatever you, how you want to measure victory or defeat. I think Gordon Ray is right. It just kind of depends on how you measure that. Um, but it is a turning point and it goes to show the initiative outweighs just about anything else with, with Grant um, turning south and, and having that option available to him. Uh, unlike Hooker, which, you know, there is the Battle of Chancellorsville is honestly kind of a disappointment as a result of that. So why I don't enjoy reading about it, to be honest. And 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 Lee was disappointed by it. And, and certainly the entire Union Army was disappointed. Like everybody yeah. found Chancellorsville to be disappointing. Uh, Lee was more frustrated by his victory at Chancellorsville than he was by his victory at Fredericksburg, um, which says a lot, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
And uh, May 11th, um, it's kind of an important day, right, with uh, uh, Jeb Stewart, Battle of uh, Yellow Tavern. Um, you know, I know that uh, we've, we've probably talked quite a bit about this with, uh, with Sheridan. Um, and <laughs> we, uh, Nate and I have very different ideas about <laughs> Phil Sheridan, uh, which is always kind of fun. We do a little trash talking in the way like baseball fans might trash talk the Yankees and the Red Stocks. Uh, you know, we, we trash talk. Uh, right. Sheridan yeah. Back. Although I will say, I, is it, isn't it significant, though, that it's funny how this is the raid, right? This is the successful raid. Um, it's not, it's not the one with, with, uh, the Richmond raid at Trevian station or anything like that. Right. Um, that falls apart, but this is the raid and, and Sheridan puts his money where, or puts his mouth where his money is and actually goes out and whips Jeb Stewart. Now there, there is, I, I totally concede the point. He loses his eyes. Um, but I just think for Grant, I, I, I'm just not sure where he ever really used the cavalry in, in reconnaissance. And if, you know, I'm, I'm still looking for that, uh, that experience he had out West. Um, from what I understand, he just loved raids. Uh, he really liked using the cavalry for raids. The disruptive ability of a raid to really throw the enemy into tumult. Mm -hmm. uh, and it served him real well in the Vicksburg campaign, for instance. Yeah, yeah. And but one, one could argue that Shiloh happens because, for instance, he's not affecting effectively using any sort of cavalry to screen his army or serve as his eyes and ears. That's that's a fair argument, actually. I actually haven't had someone bring that up before, which I find which I'm shocked no one has. But um, yeah, that's that's a fair point. Um, <laughs> But, but, you know, and, and, you know, everyone has their strengths and weaknesses and I'm, I'm a Grant fan and I, you know, for, for his failures to property, properly utilize cavalry, look at the innovations he does with uh, relations with the Navy. And so, you mm -hmm. know, that's, I think, yeah. where his strengths end up being uh, in that, you know, with that branch of service. So. Although I do want to kind of dive into some of his, his failures there at Spotsylvania Courthouse. Look, as much as I like reading about, you know, May 12th and, and kind of finding, um, that that opening on on May 10th. The, the reality is, and I've argued, and I I plan on arguing this in my dissertation. Is is you know to me, June 3rd at Cold Harbor is not Grant's worst day. His worst day is May 18th at Spotsylvania Courthouse. To me, um, the the charge, the plane. I mean, it was just it, it was atrocious. Um, by this point in time, you know, it's very clear Lee has established a very defensive line, um, and more so than obviously there's not um, mule shoe uh, and going out to Spotsylvania Courthouse and actually looking at Lee's new line. Um, it's just kind of hard for me to imagine and say, you know, I, I think at this point you should have just continued to maneuver south because I, I know that Seigel is his Shenandoah. Uh, he fell apart out in the Shenandoah and Butler is bottled up. Um, I know Grant was probably just seeing if anything was there, but I just, I can't see it justified though. 
I can't see it. Well, and I think the fact that he calls it off after three hours, I mean, he sees pretty clearly like, hey, yeah, this didn't work out the way I thought it was supposed to. Yeah. Um, I do wonder, uh, you know, because I think a lot of that really hinges on the fact that he expects that army to move the way his Western armies did, you know, quick on the flash. And the Army of the Potomac is just a big, slow, massive, cumbersome beast that doesn't move that way. And then you add on top of that the five days of rain that they had uh, previous to that maneuver. Uh, like his, the army just can't move, uh, aside from the fact that it usually just does move. Um, and so had he been able to get uh, you know, the second and sixth corps into position and really launched them, who knows what might have happened. Lee's um, last line is not especially strongly anchored. And so if Grant could have had the man to extend that line to his right a little bit further, uh, who knows what he might have found as he was doing that. But, you know, if, uh, uh, you know, if wishes were, I don't even know what the metaphor is, but you know, you know, like he's wishing the army is going to do something and it doesn't. And uh, at least he has the smarts to call it off rather than yeah. try to prolong it. Yeah. Although, um, you know, after, after that, he, he moves on to North Anna and I, I'm disappointed that North Anna, I feel like North Anna is kind of like the forgotten middle, middle child is if you want to refer it to that. Um, at least to me, at least I, because whenever I talk about it, it's, it's either the wilderness, Spotsy or Cold Harbor. Um, but then I feel like North Anna and then depending on how you characterize it, you know, Siege of Petersburg is, uh, or the assaults on Petersburg are left out. So, yeah. Well, and one of the things, and you talked about Gordon's work earlier, and I think the, mm -hmm. one of the brilliant things about his, his fifth book in his series was that, you know, he really gives due justice to Grant's withdrawal out of Cold Harbor and the crossing of the James. Mm -hmm. um, and then you kind of get into the initial siege against uh, Petersburg and the Dimmick line. But I think that that withdrawal from Cold Harbor and getting across the river um, is completely overlooked. Uh, you know, that's kind of the tail end of the, you know, it's the postscript of the campaign. Uh, and that was an incredibly complex maneuver to disengage in the face of a foe, march as you do, and then try to get across a mile-wide tidal river. Um, uh, and the way Gordon illuminated that, uh, I thought was incredible. Yeah, um, his his maps, it, it, you know, obviously, if you haven't read his book or seen some of the maps he's put in, I mean, they're, they're phenomenal. Um, but I, I really do think, at least at Cold Harbor, you know, there's there's a bigger story that that happens after the June 3rd assault, at least to me. And it's it's a part of that battle, I think, that's that's really left out. And that is, you know, Grant doesn't, you know, on June 3rd, he's like, oh, darn it. We lost, you know, we lost the campaign. This is it. All right, let's pack it up. Um, no, it, instead, the, the, the crazy thing to me is he says, hold your most advanced position. So he doesn't even say, you know, like, fall back, like, Go back to the original line he's like no just hold where you're at and you know now of course they're already under fire and you know at this point they'd probably already dug in but he could have easily said like yeah we gotta we gotta go back but he doesn't well, and, uh -huh. and what i think is really interesting about that is you know lee always worried about losing his ability to maneuver and he kind of gets backed up against richmond at that point but grant really realizes like he doesn't have room to maneuver anymore either he's got the james river and he can't get forward to richmond so mm -hmm. uh, where is he gonna go he's lost his ability to maneuver too yeah and and so i yeah i think he's at this point um He's really considering two things. And I think, and this is at least kind of where some of my research has drawn me to is 
for 24 hours, Grant considers like besiege, besieging Lee in a very unorthodox way on Cold Harbor. Um, I mean, the idea of a mine is brought up. They were thinking about bringing mortars into Cold Harbor. Um, I mean, so it's kind of weird. And I and from reading some of the soldiers' account, everyone keeps bringing up Vicksburg. I mean, Vicksburg is this whole idea that that is surrounded you know they're like oh it's going to be another Vicksburg it's it's you know and the confederate soldiers saying the same thing as long as it doesn't become you know Vicksburg we're good um and yeah it is that they're everyone is just afraid they're going to lose that ability to maneuver and especially especially the the confederates the the one thing I don't think really the confederate soldiers or even the union soldiers were really considering at this point was um moving to Petersburg, maneuvering to Petersburg. Um, although what I find, and this is where I, I'm impressed by Grant's ability to create a strategy, and I'd argue his strategy worked, just not in the way he thought. Um, but, you know, look, Butler still maintained a position on the peninsula, regardless, you know, of his failure um, to press on and beat Beauregard. Um, to me, that's not important. He held the peninsula. And without that, they wouldn't have been able to get across, go get over to Petersburg. And then even with, even with Seigel, um, and, and this sounds crazy, but, but even him holding out at Harper's Ferry later actually prevented Jubal early um, from going as far as he get, did. He had to consider like, okay, there's some, there's some guys there. I don't know. Um, so it, it's just kind of, I, I just kind of find the whole Virginia 1864 I it is a it is a weird crazy awful just thing that happened um and I think the one thing too that really slowed Grant down um was was the supply trains he was actually embarrassed by the supply trains he had to he had to bring along I know you had mentioned that earlier he wrote a note off to Halleck and he's like he's like yeah it's, my supply trains are really holding me up I'm you know he's like I'm sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. About that. yeah, and but but I you know there again I think you know if you consider the way that once he gets down close enough to the rivers where he can use the York to to ferry mm -hmm. supplies up to him using the Navy, uh, you know he's he's playing three D chess by that point and you know doing what he can to to really um, you know use all the resources available to him to keep him moving even mm -hmm. if he's not maybe moving as fast as he'd like to at least he's able to still keep moving absolutely uh, that's why i was thought that may may 9th that spotsy was so important because as burnside who's generally overlooked and for a lot of good reasons uh, during the overland campaign uh when he captures the fredericksburg road though um that allows grant to shorten his supply line from from culpepper to fredericksburg which is a huge operational advantage for him uh, because the infrastructure all exists in fredericksburg for him to be able to move supplies efficiently uh and in mass um, through you know roads and railroads and using the navy and so it's like just just a huge huge payoff for that uh, capturing that that uh, that route yeah and I do have a question for you and don't worry this will connect here but I'm actually curious your your general thoughts here about McClellan and the Peninsula campaign I'm just kind of curious okay okay um and I guess I sort of fall in the camp of the stereotype, the you know stereotypical reaction to McClellan. I, yeah. I have very few positive things to say about McClellan, <laughs> mostly because, and this is all 
you know, through the gift of hindsight and having been right. able to read his mail and his letters and all that, you know, he's just an asshole, you know? <laughs> and so I have, so that just biases me yeah. against him. The way he treats the president and the war department and everything, it's, you know, like, so I'm just biased against him for that. And so as I look mm -hmm. at, at his performance on the campaign, on the, on the peninsula, um, I just don't have anything good to say about it. Now, I'll say lots of good things about Fitzgerald Porter, for instance, who saves that army where McClellan's not even on the field as the army's trying to retreat away from Richmond during the seven days. Um, a huge abdication of responsibility on McClellan's part by just not physically being with his army. Um, uh, you know, and it always opens up the question, gosh, what would have happened had, had Porter been able to continue to serve in the army? Because I think that he uh, really was quite brilliant during that campaign. Um, so that's my general assessment and why. Um, the only reason I ask is because the only point of uh, concession I give typically is his ability to see the peninsula as a way to transport men and he realized its strategic significance. Um, I, I, I'm totally, you know, in agreement uh, with a lot of that. Uh, he was, he was way too, um, I, I'll call it egotistical, a bit, a bit arrogant, obviously. I mean, little Napoleon, I, you know, I kind of see that. Um, uh, but I think ultimately, um, he does have the arm, he's, he's attempting to get the armies to work together. And again, I can give him um, some, some credit uh, there, but it just doesn't work out the way the way he wanted it to, of course. Um, and, and, but, and I'll give him big props for his organizational abilities. You know, I mean, he builds. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Fantastic. And, and I think that's probably Hooker's best attributes, too, is that, you know, he rebuilds that army in the wake of Fredericksburg. And people think of him for Chancellorsville. But I, I think Hooker was brilliant at figuring out how to take care of his men and, and, and fix them. And I think yeah. Grant has the benefit of the learning curve by 1864 you know all these people have had trial and error before him and so he's he i think is is shrewd to take advantage of all that um he might not be brilliant on his own that way but he's brilliant for learning from the mistakes of others yeah and i i would even say he was probably politically pretty pretty shrewd he he kind of understood to keep his head out of out of the politics in washington i and to some extent i i I really feel for, for Meade here. Um, and just to kind of get on the topic of Meade, I guess, all of a sudden. Um, I, I just think the unfortunate thing is the first thing Grant has to do when he comes to Washington is go defend Meade um, for his actions at Gettysburg, which, you know, it, it kind of already goes to show the toxic political culture that surrounds the Army of the Potomac. And, and you know, I, Grant having to navigate that um, is just something that I, I think was probably really, really hard for him to do. And that, and I think that's kind of why in my own interpretation of why he sent Sheridan off on, on the raid is, is I, I, I think he probably felt pretty awkward about bringing Sheridan along with him, forcing Sheridan to come with him because Sheridan didn't want to go. Right. He recognized the glory was with, was with Sherman going on to Atlanta. Um, but Sheridan came with, and here's me, this, this guy that Grant wants to keep on. And here they are just getting into a terrible, terrible argument. And so Grant's like, 
okay, we're just going to split you guys up um, and you're going to be on your way. So I think that's one of the reasons, but that's my own interpretation. So. But that's a, that's a generous interpretation, which I appreciate because I've always looked at it as a, a you know, one of Grant's low points of the campaign, you know, this failure, this abdication of responsibility to not back his army commander in favor of his buddy. But see, the way you have interpreted that actually um, sheds a little, um, sheds some light on that in a way that, you know, is a bit more generous. Yeah, I, I will say though, he does lose some moral moral courage um, through, throughout the campaign and especially in regards to what happens at the crater um, where, where he backs Meade into uh, not permitting um, the USCT into leading the initial charge. I, I, you know, that was just total mistake. Um, and, and, I, and I think he realized that. I, um, later on, calling it like the saddest affair he ever, he ever witnessed. Uh, but I, I do think, though, um, as much as Meade probably didn't like Grant looking over his shoulder, um, I, I can't appreciate the fact like Meade stayed on for the entire time. And, and as much as the crazy thing to me is none of those core commanders survived to the Appomattox campaign. Yeah, right, right. Meade survived. He, he made it through all three campaigns. Um, and I think that says a lot about what Grant thought of Meade. Because typically, if Grant, if you didn't get along with Grant, Grant was gonna find a way to get rid of you. Um, and, I, and I own up to that. Uh, but I, I just think uh, there's a lot of that. And I know he's trying to figure that out in the Overland campaign. It's kind of why he likes, he likes Hancock. And, and uh, I think, again, Gordon Ray does a great job of kind of explaining why, you know, Hancock looks really good to Grant. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Meade. Um, for a, for a number of reasons. I mean, I think his performance during Mine Run was exceptional. Um, but the fact that he has his boss looking over his shoulder every single day of Overland campaign through Petersburg, and he he just mans up and takes it because it's his duty. And you know, if you read his letters to his wife, and he's just chafing under it the whole time. I mean, you know, and he hopes to be relieved. But he says it's his duty, and he will stay on because that's what his duty requires. And and that's such a foreign concept to a lot of people today about you know the responsibility that comes with your duty. And uh, so I really admire me as just a consummate professional for all that stuff. Um, I always like to look at the note that Grant sends to the War Department on the 11th, where he says, you know, he recommends Meade and Sherman both for promotion to Major General in the regular army. And he says, I don't want one of them promoted without the other. Uh, and we all know like what, what great pals Grant and Sherman were. Mm -hmm. And to think that he's putting Meade up on that same level as Sherman in that correspondence. Um, and I think that that speaks, a, speaks well of how Grant thought of Meade, if, even if he didn't necessarily show it um, mm -hmm. overtly. Uh, you know, Grant notoriously uh, reticent to speak, you know, uh, you know not, not very loquacious. Um, so that's how he feels, even though he might not necessarily demonstrate yeah, and I, I'm actually, I know that, um, I believe it's Jen Murray that's actually working on a biography of Mead right now, and I know I'm really, I'm really looking forward uh, to, to reading that, um, but I, I, I think overall, um, 
you know, and, and I'll even say, look, the Union Corps commanders, they they probably did is as much as I can fault them and point out each little bit of mistake, I will never take away the fact like they had to fight one of the hardest campaigns of the entire war. Um, and, and so the fact that they were able to keep up with that, the fact that Lee and his army could keep up with that, especially at North Anna after May 23rd. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I am totally amazed by it, and I'm actually shocked not more mil, military historians take take more interest in that to be. Yeah, I mean, that Lee survives May 23rd is amazing. Uh, and his innovation to, to recast his line into the inverted V, which they, I think is then his most brilliant defensive position, but, but he absolutely could have been wiped off the map at North Anna because of his mistakes at the Chesterfield Bridge and, and at uh, Jericho Mills. Um, absolutely been devastating to him. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a bit, um, you know, when, when we were actually walking out there and, and you showed me Oxford and how steep it was and, and that's where uh, Ninth Corps Burnside's men were, um, you know, I actually became a bit um, focused on Oxford and I was like, you know, why is he so obsessed with taking Oxford? Um, because if you look at it, it's like, come on. Uh, but ultimately, I, I really do think um, part of that is, I think Grant just wanted to, first off, he just wanted to keep the initiative and keep that pressure going. Uh, but secondly, I think the one thing Grant really liked to do is mass his forces together. Um, and I think he probably didn't understand moving across those two rivers uh, or having to travel, travel over them. Um, so many times to reinforce another, but I think he did understand the importance of having all of his troops just kind of in a line and ultimately massing his forces against the Confederates. And I, and because in the OR, he's just constantly sending off orders over to Burnside. like, Hey, how about Ox Ford? What's, what's going on there? Um, but I, I do think with, with, um, North Anna in particular, the Lee's line his, his the inverted v is just it really does show Lee, lee's brilliance and and i know that right now especially there is a tendency um to downplay his gen generalship a little bit and and whatnot but but i, I really do think at the end of the day it, the inverted v kind of proves otherwise it, it's just it, it's brilliant you can't you can't say it's not um and to do that in such short order while your men are like in crisis mode while you have, you know, horrible, um, just a terrible illness uh, where, where you're on the pot, um, you know, I probably couldn't do that, so. Yeah, I mean, talk about um, thinking out of the box on the fly, you know, to mix a couple metaphors there, and he comes up with something that's that's absolutely brilliant. I think, too, that the, the lack of good maps really hampers Grant. I mean, if you look yeah. at, at uh, Hancock's correspondence, he's advancing toward the North Anna, and he first gets to Long Branch, and he thinks that's the river, you know, and then it's like, oh, wait, no, wait, no, uh, now I found the river, you know, so like, you know, I don't think they appreciate the topography on the South Bank. They don't realize just what an awful position Oxford is. Um, and, uh, you know, you and I, as, as historians, understand the value of walking the ground so that we can understand the battle. And, uh, you know, we forget that 
often those commanders weren't able to walk the ground. You know, like Grant would have been under fire walking the ground to understand the yeah. battlefield like that. Um, Lee would have been under, well, and actually Lee literally was under fire. So in his <laughs> Multiple times. Uh, <laughs> to the rear. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that gives us a, a vantage point today that they didn't have at the time. And, you know, all they've got are maps and maybe the maps are okay, maybe they're not. Yeah, and I, I, I do find that it constantly hinders their ability. And I know, um, you know, again, another resource that, that I absolutely love is Grant Secret Service, where it talks about all of his, you know, military intelligence and, and everything else. And they say during this time, during the Overland campaign, they were completely overwhelmed with all of the different information coming in from deserters, from people living around that area. They just had no idea what to take, what to pull, uh, what's true, what's not true. Um, well, maybe if he had some cavalry to help him sort through some of that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. Hey, he, hey, Sheridan does come back at North Anna. Uh, I do, I do want to, I do want to point that out. Um, he does come back, and uh, he actually, and I will say this: he plays a very key role at Cold Harbor. Very, oh, sure. very key role. Uh, very important, I might add. Um, so, so tell me about that because I've, yeah, I've got some um, thoughts about that too. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm again, I'm just like, so I, I love reading about Cold Harbor, I just think it's so interesting. And I think where we tend to forget a lot of actions that occur is, is what happens after North Anna. So, everything from May 27th up until um, you know, June 1st, there's a lot of engagements that still take place um, at places like Haas Shop um, and then at, all, at the um, uh, Cold Harbor Crossroads. I mean, I, I mean, there's just all this, all these engagements going on. And, and I want to uh, just kind of remind um, everyone that, that, you know, I think Grant was feeling pretty good um, about this because they're winning all these small uh, tactical engagements. I mean, this is, this is kind of a big deal. Um, and you know, Lee is getting a little worried here, um, and especially on June 1st. I mean, the Union do briefly break through that line there, and, and that's really important to note. They, they brought up part of the Army of the James under Smith, um, and even though he was accidentally sent somewhere else, he eventually finds his way to the battlefield and helps Wright uh, break through. And there's a small uh, Confederate tactical victory there on, on, the, on the 2nd. Um, Jubilee early is able to push um, the Union, the Union Army. Um, they're able to push in a, a few brigades. Um, but ultimately, uh, the Union Army will retake that on June 3rd, which is kind of forgotten. So the fighting that takes place up on the Union right uh, near uh, Bethesda Church actually, you know, is more or less a, a stalemate. Um, and, and they were still planning on um, engaging uh, uh, Jubal early. Uh, even on the third, it wasn't until an order was sent out to suspend all uh, engagements with the enemy. Really, the failure comes down on the Union left, and that's where everyone remembers, uh, uh, you know, Lee's last great field victory, as I like to call it. Um, I, I ultimately, even though Hancock does briefly break through, I primarily blame Wright for that. Um, he was supposed to coordinate with both. Smith and Hancock, and he doesn't. And, you know, Smith is saying like, you know, I can, I can proceed forward, but I got to have some support. And same with Hancock. Hancock is sending off the same orders, right? 
And I think there, you know, that's one of those, I think one of Lee's, or I mean, one of Meade's low points because he's kind of like to heck with it, you know, and he, he sort of washes his hands and he's the guy who really should be serving the role to coordinate all that stuff and make sure it happens. And he's, it's almost like he's so disgusted by that point that he's just. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I need to do more research on this, uh, but, you know, at least from what I found, you know, Meade did send out a, a, a few orders to make sure that they were coordinated. Um, and that's why I think I get so frustrated with Wright because I'm seeing these orders and I go, okay, well, the orders are right here. Why didn't you keep advancing? Um, and, and, I, and at that point, really, you're only, you only have two cores. You don't have a full third core to support you. And that's going to make a huge difference because the Confederate Army only had one reserve and they used that reserve on Hancock. Um, so, you know, to me, I, I'm just like, oh, man, you were this close. Um, and, and we could go through the whole Overland campaign and look, you know, almost day by day, like somebody was this close somewhere. Oh, I know. It's sickening. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I will say um, my main focus is after that. And that is when, amazingly, Grant contracts his line somehow without any disaster occurring um and ultimately kind of uses regular approaches you know this again the siege warfare kind of comes up but but lee notices this and he says okay i gotta take the initiative back here and he's writing letters off to davis and he's saying okay this is my chance i i can do this it never happens um there are um probes um on the on the fourth and the sixth i believe uh there's a limited offensive that does take place on the seventh um, but but none of that follows through. And then on the 10th, Lee is ordering his, his corps commanders. He's like, hey, um, if you catch them pulling out from their position, you have to attack them. Doesn't catch them. And the reason why is on June 7th, Grant's like, Sheridan, go drive their cavalry away. Make them lose their eyes for a minute. So the impressive thing here, right, is if, if Grant loses his eyes, Lee definitely needs to be criticized on June 7th for saying, yep, everyone go after him. He's now blind. Grant can do whatever he wants. Um, and so I think that is the turning point of that battle and how Grant is able to successfully withdraw. And I think that's a, a matter of Lee's overconfidence. Like, you know, he's got Grant basically pinned down or Grant, you know, has, has pinned himself down. Where is he going to go? You know, and so, you know, Lee's thinking Grant doesn't have a whole lot of options. So he's feeling, you know, feeling his oats. And, you know, as you said, he's, he's starting to think offensively there because, um, you know, he thinks he's got Grant on the ropes at that point. So mm -hmm. What yeah. do you make of, of the, the truce? Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really good question. And, and we had talked, we had talked about this a little bit and I, and I'm pretty much in agreement with you here. Um, look, Lee was in the right. Okay. He had every right to say, yeah, admit, admit, you know, you lost on, on June 3rd. I do think the, the lettering is specifically referring to June 3rd. I don't, at this point, I don't think he's like referring to like all the engagements, but just like, look what you did on June 3rd. Um, and, and, you know, look, Grant, at this point, he's put himself in this position. And so Grant kind of needs to just own up to that and, and deal with it. Um, because look, at this point, he does have wounded men on the field and he needs to bring them in. And, and clearly his troops are really upset about this. Otherwise, they wouldn't have come to him and said, hey, 
you know, like we get, we got to get our guys off the field. Um, and so I think that's where Grant kind of, kind of falls through the cracks a little bit there, but I would, I do want to say this, and I, and I think this, this part is often forgotten is, is they only brought, I think there was like one union survivor, maybe, maybe two, um, after the truce was, was fully, um, put into effect. But at this point between June 4th to June 7th, Lee actually has more wounded men on the field at this point um, that are still alive, uh, most likely. So that, you know, it is a little bit weird because Lee can also go and retrieve his wounded. However, you know, it, Lee is always talking about he has manpower shortages and, and all this stuff, but he's kind of like, eh, you know, um, I want you to concede defeat before I go and do that. Um, I think that is also a bit curious. I, Gordon Ray is absolutely right to say they're two hard-headed men that just didn't want to admit defeat. And, you know, and I, I think both of them keenly aware of the political implications of, of looking like they're the losers. One of the things that I, as I keep thinking about this incident is um, it suggests to me that maybe Grant is not bargaining from a position of strength because if he was you know if he was winning what does he have to lose i mean aside from the political stuff but it's just like you know what i can be magnanimous here because i know i'm winning i've got this i've got the confidence fine you know like he could give that away if he was as you know thinking that he was in a strong position. So what does that really say then about, you know, how he's thinking about himself and, uh, you know, aside from the political uh, implications of what's going on. Um, yeah. You know, cause it is, it is a, a, you know, a humanitarian crisis, you know, I don't know how mm -hmm. else to put it, uh, that, that deeply impacts both sides and it casts both men in pretty poor light, I think. It, it really does. And I, and I think it also goes to show like how far away both, both Lee and Grant are, are, from the actual fighting itself, and um, and I and and I've and I've said I, I've said this before. I, I I really do think that the awful part of war, and it's unfortunate, both both Grant and Lee flopped on this, um, is that you know it, out of all the death and everything else, the great I mean I've always said the great part about the United States is the individuality that comes along with it. Um, but in war, that individuality is is taken away, and it, the collective goal. Um, becomes like your primary objective. So the lives of these men um, have ultimately become secondary and it's the objective that they have to succeed. Um, and I, but there are times when you, in this instance, especially morale is down, you need to go out and you need to somehow raise that morale. And I really do think Grant missed an opportunity here to raise some of that morale and say, look, you know, Grant, in this time period, he actually was on the defensive. He was actually just waiting on Lee to attack him uh, because he knows after this June 3rd assault, he has temporarily lost his offensive capability um, and he's got he's to refigure everything into the equation. Um, and, and he is, Grant, and as much as he probably didn't want to admit it, he was always afraid of Lee pulling a, pulling a you know, cat out of the bag or something like just you know, having someone just completely flank aside without him realize it, um, you know. So for, for Grant, I, he was all, I think he was always worried about it. Did he show it? Probably not a lot, but I, th I think in this instance, you know, he 
he was pretty concerned about that. I think about, you know, that famous statement he makes on the uh, 6th of May to one of the panicked staff members of the Army of the Potomac. And he says, like, you always seem to think that Lee is going to attack us on both flanks simultaneously and do a double somersault land in our rear. And I want you to be more concerned about what we're going to. And, you know, bold thinking, I really like it a lot. But by the time they start moving toward the North Anna, Grant is second guessing every move he makes because he's afraid Lee's going to hit him on both flanks and double, you know. So those yeah. are hard lessons that he learns over the course of, of two weeks. Oh, and then, yeah. you know, as you yeah, say, no. by the time he's down at Cold Harbor, he's deeply concerned about some of that stuff happening to him. Yeah, and and I and I'll admit, I think he actually got a bit overconfident um, in that in that short time period between you know, May 27th to June 1st. I mean, it really does look like they're breaking. Um, they're, you know, and and like, like you said, he, he's winning, you know? Yeah, he's winning all those. Yeah, like he, he has every reason to think that, but it's a hard lesson on on June 3rd to, to see that they still have considerable strength. Um, they can still fight back a, a very strong assault, except one without right. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, so, so anyway, um, the... I think you start to actually see some of that um, with with Lee actually during during the Petersburg campaign. He actually becomes very very concerned about what Grant's doing, and and I think that's actually where Lee kind of falls apart um, because he's asking you know both uh, the Secretary of War, he's asking Davis, he's like, hey, we gotta get these supplies figured out. We you know Grant's gonna do this, he's gonna do that, and you know I think Lee almost. He eventually, not not around this time, but he he also eventually loses sight. Like, hey, I got to stop worrying about what he's going to do, and I got to figure out what I'm going to do next. Yeah. Um, you know, and I I know his options were limited, but but ultimately you have to do something. You can't being stagnant in warfare is one of the worst things you could possibly do. So let's uh, let's back things up to the wilderness for a second. Yeah. What what would you consider to be the pivotal moment or the pivotal <laughs> outcome of the wilderness? Let's kind of go through the the overland campaign and stages here. Yeah, sure. Um, so of the wilderness, I know a lot of people like to say Grant um, heading south. Well, he wouldn't have been able to do that without Hancock um, holding off that Confederate counterattack. Um, and I know he was driven back by by Longstreet, but I but I really do think it wasn't the, the wounding of Longstreet there. But I think it was him just being able to use those um, temporary entrenchments to beat off the Confederate counterattack. That's what I love about this stuff, because then we could back that up even further. And like, well, Hancock couldn't have been there if it wasn't for George Getty's fabulous theatrics. Yeah. On the That's right. Yeah. <laughs> like we can always. <laughs> yeah, we can keep going backwards. That's right. But I'm going to stick with that. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not moving so, on. So that. Hancock's defense on the uh, on the sixth. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to say Longstreet's winning. Um, that's, yeah, taking Longstreet off the board at that moment um, is just a, a crippling blow for Lee because who in Lee's army knows anything about Grant? Nobody, except for old Pete, you know. Um, and then if you think about this sort of defensive style of warfare that these armies mm -hmm. are settling into and, and, you know, Longstreet's very defensive minded. So it sort of plays to some of Longstreet's strengths. So having him gone, I think, is just a, is a terrible blow. And Richard Anderson, um, certainly capable i mean lee liked him enough to make a core for him later on in the war when longstreet yeah. came back but he didn't have the razzle dazzle and the, and the punch that longstreet no and i and i think the uh, his quote unquote you know attack against the union right i i do think that's a bit overdone he he turned in a brigade and a half 
I, you know, that's to me that it's just, that's just not significant. If you want to talk about the significance, look at Longstreet showing up with the Texans, look at the defense, Hancock hooks up. I mean, it's, yeah. To me, it's just kind of like everything going on up north is just kind of like this weird back and forth, crazy action. Um, you know, it, it's almost really hard to follow, um, yeah. to be honest. But um, to me, that's still that's still you know where I where I hold out. Sure, sure, sure. I, it, one one decision that I think is hugely consequential is when um, Lee orders Anderson to leave by two a.m. on the eighth but he actually leaves by 10 p.m. on the 7th because the forest fire is burning around the encampment of the First Corps. So Anderson leaves four hours early. And if you think that he gets to Spotsylvania literally in the nick of time, those four hours made all the difference in how Spotsylvania played out. Well, I, I think every, I, yeah, that that fire. Um, you know, and and... I will, I will say this, that, that, you know, again, we can keep backing up here. I mean, that fire wouldn't have broken out if, if Grant hadn't been like, yeah, go out. Yeah, I'm yeah. still, I'll admit, I'm personally, I'm a little bit mixed about how I feel about Grant attacking in the wilderness. Um, because even though, you know, Lee attacked Grant, it was kind of like a, you know, it wasn't really, <laughs> uh, it wasn't really like a full on, like, no. like uh, assault. Um, but I know that Grant was, it was important that he keep the initiative and he needed to figure out how these men fought. So um, what about Spotsylvania? Yes. Uh, so what do you think about Spotsylvania? Um, that's a hard one. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot that happens there. Um, oh man. Um, Cause I haven't thought this through. So, you know, I'm sort of sandbagging. I, I haven't either. Um, I'm, I'm going to probably say, yeah, I'm gonna say I'm. I gotta say May 18th. I have to. Um, I, I I really do. I, I I really do think that was the convincing point. Like, yeah, you can't fight here anymore. You gotta go. Like, th this is not the place. Um, it's not going to happen here. And regardless of how successful May 12th was, I just I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to say the morning of May 8th and it's either Sheridan leaving. Um, <laughs> right. It, or, it's always Sheridan leaving. It's always, it's always got to be on Sheridan. Sheridan. I, I imagine we're going to get to like North Anna and it's somehow going to be Sheridan again. I, I have no idea how, but it's going to be Sheridan. Grant gets elected president because Sheridan leaves on the morning of the day. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> because that, that, that um, it forces Meade to fight that battle in a way that Meade was not used to operating um, because he was used to having his cavalry scouting and protecting his flanks and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I can go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Or, or Anderson's arrival in the nick of time, you know, because that then affects the way the, the battle unfolds. Absolutely, and I, I was only going to say, I, you know, obviously, I Meade had a great, um, great cavalry court up at Gettysburg, you know, obviously. Um, what he was working with was was very very good, um, you know. And I know that they still like guys like Greg, and and you know I I'm a big fan of Greg. Um, I think he does very well. But um, yeah, I, I yeah that's it. Yeah, I, I that's what I was debating between May May <laughs> or May 18th. But I guess I I'm gonna stick with May 18th. I'll stick with yeah, May. 18th. No, that's yeah yeah yeah. That's, All right. I mean it's a it's a big eye opener for Grant. I think. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. What about North Anna? Uh, North Anna, North Anna? Um, the pivotal moment at North Anna. Uh, well, you know, it has to be Lee deciding to reconfigure his lines, I think. I, I'm totally in agreement. I, I wouldn't say anything else. Um, that I would say that that is like the key moment. Although I will say, um, you know, the the assault, um, the counterattack at Jericho Mills, I, I think is is really interesting because Warren almost doesn't hold right. there. Um, which to some degree I'd almost be interested because it would almost make me wonder if they would hold a defensive position there and, and Lee would attempt to keep men all extended all the way up there. And I almost sometimes wonder, like, how would that affect his lines if the Union Army then massed more towards Lee's right? But that's just a big yeah. what if. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, well, Totopotomy Creek. We should always uh, like we haven't. Even, oh yeah, that's right. We haven't mentioned the name Totopotomy Creek, which blends into Bethesda Church, which blends into Cold Harbor. So you know, I I actually include that as a part of the Battle of Cold Harbor. Um, yeah, yeah. In my dissertation, and that's probably why I don't I don't include no, that's, it. That's, that's right. I just like to say it because it's hard to say Totopotomy, and it's spelled with a whole bunch of O's that people don't realize are in there. So that's, well, and between you and me, I always just say Bethesda Church because I never want to mess that up. <laughs> <laughs> so well, let's talk about just like any of any of the actions leading up to june 1st between north anna i gotta say hot shot um lee figures out where grant is yeah, yeah that would be my guess too so yeah absolutely yeah. um but also holding cold harbor crossroads um by by sheridan and and grant's order to him like hold that at all costs i think to me, um, that shows Grant can read the topography. I, I've always argued, like anyone that says he can't read a map, can't re can't read the importance of the topography. I'm like, look at that. Um, so I, I would say that that order was really, really significant because he understood the importance of Cold Harbor. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. So, so then Cold Harbor proper. Yeah, I, I I'm going to stick with what. Um, I said earlier, and that, that's got to be June 7th. Um, Sheridan, obviously, um, you know, but uh, I, I really well, I do give all that. the credit to Sheridan's division commanders, honestly, like his division commanders perform excellently. Through and, and, and they do. Um, I, however, I, I will say like, you know, <laughs> they are not, you know, leaving Sheridan out of the plans. They're not like, Sheridan has to be smart enough at least to to work with them and even though he might be against them at times and not give them proper credit where credit is due um ultimately I do think he is the right guy because he's super charismatic and that is someone that the army of the Potomac really liked and that's why the Cavalry Corps had such a high they had higher morale than anyone else sure. um Sheridan was just like this guy that he was aggressive and and that's why Grant liked him he was just really aggressive um you know, and and he definitely had potential, and that was proven, I think, during the Appomattox campaign for sure. Yeah. Um, but at this point, he also shows um, he he is reliable to Grant. He holds the crossroads. He goes off to Trevian Station and he drives the Confederate cavalry away. Even though he loses um, at Trevian Station, the reality is, um, I I think he he does his most important job. And that is to he help banked like a little girl. He, he, <laughs> he did. He did. You're not wrong. Um, but he he liked to pretend that he won. That's if true. you read his memoirs, he's like, he's like, yeah, I won that. I did that. 
that was me. Um, it's like, okay, then why didn't you go further to go help out, you know, Hunter or cut the railroad? Um, so anyway, um, I can, I can be cruel to Sheridan if, if I'd like to be, but in that instance, I have to give him the credit. Yeah. I'm going to say, um, the limited union successes on June 1st, because that's what convinces Grant to go for it on the 3rd, which, you know, yeah. then stymies him and really kind of changes the whole nature of, you know, I think brings the whole campaign to a, to a grinding halt. Absolutely. Yeah, I can, yeah, I can see that. I can definitely see that. Um, I do, I, I did want to quickly ask you though, um, if we still have uh, time here, sure, but. Sure. Um, I'm actually curious how you, how you feel about in, including the assaults on Petersburg, because typically I end the Oberlin campaign on, on June 18th mm -hmm. um, with the order of, you know, dig in, it's a siege. Um, so I'm just kind of curious, like, like your thoughts, you know, and I know with Gordon Ray's campaign series, he ends it on June 15th. And even though I don't think he considers that the end, I know, um, I, I just think there's a lot of debate surrounding like, okay, well, when does it actually end and when does the Petersburg campaign begin? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I always sort of, once Grant makes the decision to move across the James, to me, that's the beginning of the Petersburg campaign. Okay. In the sense that, you know, as he makes that first move out of Culpeper toward the wilderness in Spotsylvania, that's the beginning of that campaign. Yeah. Um, that all said, I mean, one of the things that I like to remind people when I'm out on the battlefield with him um, is that like what starts on the 5th of May in the mm -hmm. wilderness leads inexorably to Appomattox Courthouse. And it is essentially constant contact all the way through. So you could make the argument that it's all the same thing um, because Grant has fundamentally changed the nature of the war by just. Yeah, I, I I've, you know, I'm, I'm curious if anyone would be up to this challenge one day, not me, I don't want to do it, but um, to actually analyze each engagement day by day and making a um, basically like a graph or a conclusion about the casualties, the engagement from that day, um, because that's really what you have to do. It's, and I, and that's why it's so hard to interpret it. Um, I, it's, you know, I used to, I, I used to be baffled. I'm like, how could you think that? But, but really the, the fact that there's so many engagements, I don't, to me, I don't even know how you measure that. And, and that's why this, these three campaigns, yeah, to Grant, it's just all one long campaign, um, which is quite amazing. I, I actually can't think of a campaign that actually lasted that same length. Um, I, I really can't, unless it's an actual like orthodox siege, right. I can't think of a campaign, a moving campaign um, like that. So, um, you know, that's just something that uh, I, I, I really do find interesting. So before we wrap up, one last question for you. Since you're talking about parsing numbers, that's really at the heart of your dissertation. Um, you want to take just a second to tell folks a little bit about, you know, how you're focusing your research? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I do have to say that um, I, I got really hooked on the on these numbers. I guess that's what happens when, you know, you're the son of an accountant, the brother of another accountant. Um, so that's right. Most of us are like, Hey, I'm a historian. Nobody said there'd be math. Yeah. That. right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my, my parents looked at me like, are you sure this is ours? Um, but no, they I, reading Gordon Ray's books, I, I really got hooked on these numbers and, and, 
you know, especially what, what has happened in, um, you know, I was looking at the union casualties at Cold Harbor and it was like 13, 14,000. And I'm like, that, that number just seems wrong to me because, you know, between, on, you know, on June 1st, they, they lose, you know, 2,200 roughly. Um, they, they, they lose a couple hundred more there on the second. Um, on June 3rd, they lose about 6,000. Um, but then I'm thinking, you know, how do they lose another like 4,000 men between June 4th and June 12th? There's not a major engagement. So I'm like, was it, was there a disease? Was there, you know, something that happened? But really what, what it actually is, is, is they're including numbers that take place at um, Bethesda Church. They're taking numbers before that. This is from May 28th to June 12th. So if you include those same numbers, and, and Gordon Ray has done a phenomenal job, but I'm going to kind of put together my own um, uh, kind of tally, and I've, I've already kind of started compiling those numbers together. But ultimately, um, you know, between May 28th to uh, roughly June 3rd, uh, the Confederates at this point have already lost 6,000 men. So if you include that, um, well, there's, there's going to be another roughly 2,000 casualties there. So, so really you're looking at, you have somewhere between 13 to 14,000 Union casualties at Cold Harbor. Um, you also are going to have about mm, 8,000 to 8,500 Confederate casualties as well. So. And, and to me, that's so fascinating because, you know, of course, everything that happens at Cold Harbor is at the heart of the Grant the Butcher myth or, or mm -hmm. misconception. And so to have real numbers to, to look at and parse and compare that to Lee, um, I think is really important context, you know, because we don't call, you know, Lee the Butcher, but, you know, similar casualties from Pickett's Charge, for instance, compared to what, you know, Grant's facing there at Cold Harbor. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, you know, what you're doing really sheds some important light on just giving us facts and information as opposed to, to myth and legend. Yeah. And, and, you know, look, Lee, I know a lot of people say Lee was a great defensive general, and I'm not saying he wasn't, but, but Lee preferred the offensive. He absolutely preferred the offensive. And, and you know, and, and rightfully he should have. The offensive is what you always want to be on. Um, so, so with these numbers, you know, this isn't, you know, personally my attempt either to even make Lee out to, to be a butcher of any kind. It's just, to me, that's actually more consistent with the numbers that we've already seen at this point. I mean, it's just more casualties, yeah. um, you know, and that's just something that is honestly just quite, quite awful. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's, it goes to show that, you know, we, we, at this point, we just can't measure these battles anymore by, by casualties. We really have to look at what they were achieving were they achieving their political goals were they raising morale i mean this is something that that i think um we just have to dig a little bit more into and of course at the end of the day all these numbers are people just like you and me exactly and that's why we want to tell these stories is so that people can realize that uh, this is not a bunch of far off long ago people but they're folks just like us and uh, exactly they yeah. yeah they deserve to be remembered Nate, I've had a great time um, shooting the breeze with you tonight. Thanks so much. Absolutely. For Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on and uh, hopefully uh, I'll be on at some point again to talk more about, you know, the Overland campaign or Petersburg or whatever. Uh, so, but again, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So All thanks right. so much, everyone, for joining us. I'm Chris Bukowski for the Emerging Civil War Podcast. We will see you online and on the battlefield. And before we let you go, I just want to say thank you to our engineer, Jackson Makowski, for his work behind the scenes. Thank you, Jackson. Also, thanks to the 2nd South Carolina String Band 
they're the ones who provide the fantastic and super catchy theme music that we listen to each week. You can find them online at civilwarband.com. And don't forget to join us online at emergingcivilwar.com as we continue to provide free content every day, sharing the story of America's defining event. There are 30 of us currently participating, and we want to have you participate too. So join us online at emergingcivilwar.com. For Nathan Provost, I'm Chris Makowski. Thanks so much for joining us today. We will see you online and on the battlefield. <laughs>